Good morning, Windsor Community Church. Grace and peace to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you hopefully know, my name's Chad, but if not, you came in a little late and you weren't here last week. Hey, I'm Chad. I'm visiting from the crossing. Uh, It's great to be here with you guys uh, worshiping again. This is an honor, as I said last week, to have this opportunity to worship and glorify God with you guys and preach the word to you. Psalm 77 is awesome and amazing, and there are great lessons for us in it. But I want to start with a story. Before Audrey and I were married, we thought we wanted to have three or four kids. Premarital counseling told us to get on the same page on that. It would be awkward if she wanted ten and I wanted none. But by God's grace, we said three or four. So I'll never forget uh, on Callie's birthday, Callie's our middle child. She's our first daughter. She's two years old. On her birthday, uh, it was a C-section, and so they held Callie over the sheet, and I was in there, and we saw her, and parents, you know, just just crying, at least if you're a guy like me who has his emotions on his sleeve. I'm just weeping. She's beautiful. She's perfect. She's amazing. She's cute. She's everything. And, and later, Audrey felt the same way, but a few days later, we both talked about this sense that we both believed that the Lord put on our hearts that our family wasn't complete yet. We wanted to have more kids. So uh, early last summer, Audrey and I got pregnant with our third child, and we were really excited. We felt like, yes, our family's growing. The Lord's blessed us with another child. And we were at um, American Furniture Warehouse. I'll never forget it. We're shopping for a new mattress. And Audrey starts feeling really sick and starts maybe showing signs of miscarriage. So we get the kids in the car right away. We speed home, and we go straight to our phones, especially she. She's doing research. And it seems as if the, the fearful worst is happening. She is miscarrying. So we set an appointment. A couple days later, we go to the doctor. And yes, the doctor confirms we were pregnant and are no longer pregnant. And that was really, really hard for us, especially for Audrey. Um, it was hard for me losing a child, who I believe we will meet someday, um, and seeing my wife in just such depression for a few weeks. And I share that just just to be personal and honest with you guys, but just to illustrate the reality of living in a fallen world. Apparently, at one-third of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. How hard is that? But by God's grace, we are all given a church body, and it was amazing how many people at the Crossing Church had experienced miscarriages and how many families come around, came around us and loved us. It's, it's a tough world out there, isn't it, you guys? Uh, I said it last week, I'm only 34 years old, and I've experienced a lot. I've lost an aunt to stage 4 cancer. I've lost an uncle-in-law to suicide. You guys have all been through it. If you've been on planet Earth for pretty much any amount of time, you have struggled with depression, you've despaired, you've been in a dire circumstance, a crisis of faith. And even if you're not in one of those right now, I'm not. I would say life is good right now. I'm on cloud nine I'm not naive enough to think that it's never going to happen again. I'm going to walk through another valley of weeping, as we talked about last week. And you guys are all going to walk through another valley of weeping. And what are we to do when we experience this? And I think God has a great truth for us through his servant Asaph in Psalm 77. Uh, Asaph was experiencing something. There's speculation by commentators. I'm not going to go there. We don't, it doesn't say what he was going through. And that's okay, because it helps us relate to it. 
He's depressed. He's despairing. He's doubting God's goodness and God's character. Asaph is so troubled, he can't sleep or even speak. And yet, by the end of this psalm, we see a path through the dark valley and onto the beautiful reality of the Almighty God. Here's what I want you guys to take away. This is what I believe the main point of this psalm and the sermon this morning is. When we look back at the sovereign and gracious acts God has shown in the past, chiefly as we look back to Christ, we can have hope for the present and trust for the future, no matter our circumstance. I've just divided the psalm into three parts this morning, so you note takers. Depression, consideration, and exaltation. That's what we're going to see in this psalm. Depression, consideration, exaltation. Before I dive in to preach God's word, as always, join me in prayer that I would ask for help. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbled in worship. It has been great to sing songs about your holiness and your worthiness and our adoration of you. Lord, we declare we, we love you. We want to love you more. And we believe, Lord, help us believe more and help us walk by faith this morning. As always, Lord, I pray that you'd just get me out of the way. You must increase and we all must decrease. Lord, I come before your people, not with elegant words of wisdom, but demonstration of the spirit and power grounded and rooted in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would draw near to your people this morning and draw those who aren't yet your people to yourself and that we would see a a glorious path out of depression as we get our eyes off of ourselves and our situation and onto you and your sovereign, gracious acts and redemptive history. We look to you now, Lord, through Christ and by your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me at the depression of Asaph. We will consider verses 1 through 9 together. Before Asaph really dives in to describe his depression, though, what really jumped out to me is in verse 1, at the beginning of verse 2, there's kind of a silver lining. Look at verse 1 in in the beginning of 2. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. That jumped off the page when I first read that. In the day of trouble... I seek the Lord. As real as Asaph's depression certainly is, it's almost as if verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, is a spoiler alert. He is crying. He says it twice. He's crying aloud, loudly to God. But he trusts that God will hear him. And even though he's in a day of trouble, he is going to seek the Lord. I already have to ask you guys an application question. That is a great place to start when you are feeling depressed. A confident trust that God does hear you and a conviction to seek you. Is that where you start when you're you're in a valley? Lord, you do hear me. Lord, I am going to seek you. Is that the first place you go is to God? I've been convicted as I consider this. When we're in American Furniture Warehouse, when we run home, where do we go? To the supercomputer that's in our pockets. Internet research. 
How many of us go straight there before we go to the God of the universe with conviction to seek him, trusting that he hears us? I'm not saying it's bad to do research. Sure, do research. But Audrey and I would have to be the first to admit we're so prone to go straight to our phones before we go to God when we're entering depression, despair. And the psalmist says, I'm going to seek God because I know he hears me. God hears, sees, knows, and loves his children. What stops us from running to him when we're in a valley? Do you enter days of trouble with a hope-filled expectation that God will see you through, like we talked about last week, that until he does, he will draw near to you and sanctify you through the trial? Now, let's look at the depressed state of Asaph. He's going to really get open and honest here, and we'll consider the second half of verse 2 through verse 6 together, and then we're going to take 7 through 9 on their own. They're the height of his depression. He starts by describing his depression by saying that in the night his hand is stretched out without wearying, the end of verse 2. What he means is he's praying all night to God. It may even be said he's in begging prayer. You guys have seen those who stand on the corners in downtown, and we have them a lot in Fort Collins, begging people, panhandlers, some people call them. I don't know if that's a diss. It's not meant to be just what we call them. Their, their hands are stretched out with a cup or empty-handed or with a sign, almost without wearying, desperate for help. That's the picture of the psalmist. He's all night in prayer begging God, God, I need you. My hands are open. They must close on you, Lord. I need you. Verse 2, he says, his soul refuses to be comforted. His soul refuses to be comforted. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have. I told you guys last week that my personality type is usually I'm, I'm a tigger. I'm a golden retriever. I'm usually happy all the time. This is me all the time. Chad, I'm high all the time on Jesus. But, but I have low lows. Once every like 30 or 40 days, usually for no reason, I just have like three days of depression. My wife is convinced, guys, that we have a hormonal cycle just like the ladies. Linda, yeah, she sees it in you, Ryan. <laughs> I don't know why. Two or three or four days, I'm depressed. No reason. And to be honest, there's sometimes a 12 to 24-hour period during my depression that I don't want. My soul doesn't want to be comforted. I don't want to hear gospel truths from my wife. I don't want to pray. I don't want to seek God in the Word. Why are we like that? I wonder if you guys can relate when you're down. I don't want out of this. And God, by his grace, doesn't allow us to stay there. He doesn't allow me to stay there. Eventually, I'm like, okay, I actually do want to get out of this pit. It's really dark. It's not fun. I'm not having fun at all. And I want to be happy like I usually am. But there is a moment when our souls refuse to be comforted, and that's where Asaph is right now. Verse 3, he says, when I remember God, I moan. When he meditates, when he thinks carefully and prolonged, his spirit faints. Now, most of you, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard the pastor or the preacher talk about meditation. You probably know it, but for those of you in here, maybe there's one person in here who doesn't understand what biblical Christian meditation is. When the Bible talks about that, when we talk about it as Christians, we're not talking about the, the popular, common Eastern meditation where you empty your mind of everything and try to disconnect from the cares of the world and everything you love and just totally blank mind. Christian meditation is filling your mind. It's the opposite. You are filling your mind with the person and work and attributes of God. You're, you're obsessing him. You're, you're chewing on the realities of God. 
And when Asaph does this, when he meditates, his spirit faints. In verse 4, he blames God for not allowing him to sleep. He says, you hold my eyelids open and I'm so troubled that I don't know what to say. And in verses 5 and 6, he, he looks back on the good old days, as it were. He considers the days of old, the years long ago, and he says, I want to remember when I used to be able to sing through the night, that I wasn't in this begging and desperate prayer with hands outstretched, but I could sing through the night and I could meditate. Those were the good old days, Lord, when you took good care of me and when my circumstance wasn't so dire and I wasn't so depressed. When you cared, Lord, when you were here, then he says at the end of verse 6, my spirit made a diligent search. But first, before we consider verses 7 through 9 and the depth of his depression, let me offer you guys this insight. It's a grammar lesson. Don't check out because I just said that. This grammar lesson is going to be amazing and really help us understand the psalm more. And I can't take credit for this. One commentator turned me on to this, and then I went through and looked at the whole psalm in this way, and it's amazing. Okay, so listen to this. In verses 1 through 6, there are 19 occurrences of the first person singular pronoun, I or me, and only six references to God by name, title, or pronoun. 19 times he's focused on me, 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 and I. A few times I'm going to talk about God. Even before we get to the end of the psalm and learn the entire grammar lesson, this made me reflect on depression. I'm not saying it's morally abhorrent to think about yourself and your depressed state, your desperate situation and your emotional state, but it seems as if the implication, at least in verses 1 through 6, is that it will be hard to get out of, out of depression when one only focuses on oneself. We can think about ourselves and our situation. We just can't stop there. We have to keep going, going. That's what we're going to see in this psalm. As we continue in it, we're going to see a shift in perspective that seems to help Asaph out of his depression. But he's not there yet. In verses 7 through 9, he does turn to think about God. But his depression has really colored his perspective of God. His depression has led him to doubt the character of God. And so he says, in verses 7 through 9, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in his anger, shut up his compassion? This Bible here is three years old. I got it three years ago. And as I came back to study this psalm, to preach it for, for us this morning, the note in my big margin here is rhetorical questions. Duh. Those are obviously rhetorical questions. Chad from three years ago said. And in three years of following Jesus and experiencing miscarriage and the loss of an aunt and the suicide of an uncle... I don't think that's the whole truth anymore. I think in hindsight, at the end of this psalm, at the end of this sermon, we'll be able to say, yes, those are rhetorical questions. But in the moment, I think they're real questions coming from a place of deep emotion. 
Sometimes our circumstances are so desperate and our focus so on ourselves, we may question the character of God. I have. Hard to admit being the preacher up here, but I have. You probably have too. But we can't stop there. Even amidst these questions, we must commit to continuing to walk by faith. I have an amazing quote for you guys from a book called The Screwtape Letters. I think it'll add fuel to your fire. Has anyone heard of this book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Okay, a lot of you. It's not one of his classic Christian apologetic books. It's an allegory. It's a fiction book where C.S. Lewis writes as if he is a demon named Screwtape who is discipling, to use a Christian word, or mentoring his nephew, who is also a demon, named Wormwood. How to destroy the lives of Christians and thwart the enemy's will. And the enemy is God. And enemy is always capitalized in these letters. So, so listen to this quote from Screwtape to Wormwood. He says, quote, Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Isn't that amazing? Does that not add fuel to your fire? Now remember, that's not the Bible. That's not inerrant and infallible and has no authority for us to to live on. But if there's any chance that the demons shudder when you and I look around and we ask questions like verses 7 through 9 and yet say, I'm still going to walk by faith, the enemy of our souls shudder. And I can tell you biblically that whatever it does to the enemy, it glorifies God when we ask these questions and we continue to walk by faith and not allow our circumstance to color our view of God and who he is. And so here is where we learn from God through Asaph, what should we do when our depression causes us to doubt the character of God? We should consider all that God has done. This is the second part, consideration, verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, Asaph says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Appeal is an interesting word. One pastor says this, quote, Lawyers appeal to a case when they hope for a different conclusion than the one they received from a lower court. Here then the psalmist is arguing against his own heart, which had ruled that things were hopeless, end quote. And what is Asaph appealing to? To the years of the right hand of the Most High. In other words, to the past powerful workings of the Almighty God. In verses 11 and 12, he says, He will remember the deeds of the Lord. He will remember His wonders of old. He will ponder all of God's work and think deeply on God's mighty deeds. This is the turning point of the depressed state of Asaph. And as we consider the pronouns used in these verses compared to verses 1 through 6, it's obvious his focus is changing. Verses 1 through 6, 19 times he's thinking about himself, 6 times God. In verses 10 through 12, 5 times to himself, 5 times to the Lord. His perspective is changing, and it's not even going to stop there. 
Windsor Community Church, this is the path out of your desperate circumstances or depression. Turn to the triune God, to Yahweh, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, the true and better Adam, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the Comforter, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth. This shift in perspective, it doesn't end here. Asaph's focus continues away from himself and more onto God as he considers the archetypal salvation moment in Old Testament history, the Exodus, and specifically the crossing of the Red Sea. So look with me at his exaltation of God in verses 13 through 20. Before zooming in on the Exodus, and specifically the crossing of the Red Sea. In verses 13 through 15, Asaph exalts three attributes of God. Before he considers his works, he just thinks about God himself and who he is. And he says that God is holy and his way is holy, that God is great and that God is a redeemer, and specifically a redeemer of his people. That's what he means when he says the children of Jacob and Joseph. These three attributes of God deserve a whole sermon at least, individually, and a whole lifetime of study and worship at most. And I'm only going to give them a couple seconds each. Study the attributes of God. You guys, they're amazing. If you want a good book on God's holiness, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, it's amazing. It's really, really good. First, though, he says God is holy. What does this mean? You've heard it before if you've been in church. It means God is set apart. He's utterly unique. He's transcendent. He is God and there is no other. God's holiness is primarily about his uniqueness from us, not about his moral perfection, even though he is morally perfect. It is because he is so transcendent and so different that everything he does is morally perfect. He gets to decide good and evil because he is the holy, holy, holy God. And therefore his way is holy. The life he calls his people to is different. It's unique. It's a narrow path. It's a life of loving obedience to our holy God. And it's the only way to heaven. It's the only holy path. There is no other path to the city of Zion. Next, he says that God is great. But God is great like our God. There is no God great like our God. He is mighty, he's powerful, he works wonders, and he makes his might known. He is great because he will be glorified in the nation. I love Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. This is our great God. And third, he says God is a redeemer, a redeemer of his people. God cares deeply for his people. He saves and sanctifies them, protects and provides for them. So after considering these attributes of God, Asaph exalts God for the salvation he provided in the crossing of the Red Sea. He uses poetic language and calls to mind God's mighty hand that saved his people from bondage in Egypt. This is a really amazing story. If you haven't read it in a while, you should go back and read Exodus 14. When our church, the Crossing Church, actually went through Exodus, I had the honor of preaching Exodus 14. What are the odds that I'm preaching Psalm 77 now? There's no such thing as coincidence. Anyways, 
Thank you, Lord. After the people fled Egypt, Pharaoh and his army chased the Israelites. Remember this? Pharaoh's heart is hardened. They're like, what do we do? We let all, all our slaves go. Let's chase them. And the Israelites are stuck in between the army of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. They are in a desperate circumstance, a dire circumstance. And they, they look around at their circumstance and basically, to, to sugarcoat it, they say, we're all going to die. And to tell you what they actually say, they throw a temper tantrum. And they say, we would have rather stayed slaves in Egypt than to come out here and die. What have you done, Moses? And God, what have you done? Their hearts and their perspectives sound a lot like Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Is the Lord going to spurn forever? Is he not going to be favorable to us in this moment? Has his love ceased? Are his promises at an end? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? And their mediator, Moses, not knowing for sure how God will save, but committed to walking by faith, says this to the people. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What does Moses say? Fear not, stand firm, shut up. Watch God. And then God parted the Red Sea. And that's what verses 16 through 20 poetically describe. The waters saw God, and they were afraid. The deep trembled. It rained, it thundered, it lightninged. It thundered in the storm. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled. But God's way was through the sea. His path through the great waters, yet his footprints were unseen, and God led his people like a flock by the hand of his mediator, Moses and Aaron. He saved his people. And even though he left no physical footprints, the people walked by faith. He made a way where there seemed no way out of this desperate circumstance. He provided and provides salvation for his people, and he shepherds his people. Whenever we think of that, it should bring to mind the famous psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. It should bring to mind Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who tends to us. And in these verses, verses 13 through 20, there are 21 mentions of God. And no personal references at all. Besides, if we throw him a bone at the beginning of verse 13 when he refers to God as our God, we're going to throw him a bone and say 21 times he's going to mention God. And he's not even thinking about himself. He's exalting in God. Isn't that a fun grammar lesson, you guys? Consider the trajectory of that psalm. He begins with an inward focus. He's depressed. He's looking at his circumstance. There's no way out. What should I do? Then he considers himself and God. Wait a minute. I believe in God and I know his works of the past. And he ends with a complete focus on God and exaltation. What an amazing lesson for us. There's so much to take away from this psalm. I got overwhelmed as I'm concluding this writing of this sermon and this sermon of, I want to say so much, I want to preach a whole new sermon to you guys, but I'm not going to do that, especially with a family-integrated Sunday. I'm going to keep the main thing the main thing. Look what God has done. 
That's the title of a really great song I love. If you want to listen to a good song on the way home from church today, look what God has done by the band Ghost Ship is amazing. It's all about this. Look back at what God has done. Be amazed. Be humbled in worship. It'll give you hope for the present and trust for the future. Asaph looked back on the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, and we look back on the true and better exodus, the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, in which God has forgiven our sin. He's removed his wrath from us and restored and adopted us into his kingdom, where God is our Father, our Shepherd, our King, and our treasure. We can trust that because of what God has done for us in Christ, that He is completely for us. And if you're here this morning in the sound of my voice, and you're not a Christian, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I call you to do that. Even here now, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Look, you can't trust that God is for you if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your your sin and the guilt of your sin remains on you, and God's wrath remains on you. There's this crazy belief in America that says every human is God's children, is God's child. The Bible doesn't teach that, and I love you enough to tell you that. Ephesians 2 says before we place our faith in Christ, we're children of wrath. We are under the wrath of God because of our sins. And he is not for us. He is against us. But he sent his son. And maybe he's drawing you here and now. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and you can trust that God is for you. Christians in here, when we are depressed, when we're in a dire circumstance, when we are despairing, we must get our eyes off ourselves and our situation and onto God, onto his character, onto his sovereign, saving works. That is the path out of depression. When we look back at at God's sovereign and gracious acts, we can have hope for the present and trust for the future, no matter our circumstance, no matter how it seems, which gives us the ability finally to look back on verses 7 through 9 and say an emphatic no. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable in the name of Jesus Christ? No. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time in the name of Jesus Christ? No. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion in the name of Jesus Christ? No. All of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. I want to end an illustration from a children's book because it's a family integrated Sunday but I'll, I'll show my cards it's more for you guys than for the kids anyway uh, it's a spoiler alert so I'm sorry I'm going to ruin the book for you you should still buy it it's really good and it's really heavy so you've been warned it's called The Moon is Always Round it's a true story Um, It's about a mom and a dad and a little boy. And the little boy looks like he's about four years old in the book, my son's age. And the book chronicles the, the little boy and his learning how to articulate what he sees in the world, and namely the shape of the moon. And it's also chronicling the pregnancy of the mom in the story. 
And really when the book starts is there's a picture of the moon and all the different shapes of the moon, and he's describing them, but he says that Daddy said that the moon is always round. No matter what it looks like, the moon is always round. So as you go on in the book, he says, when Daddy and Mommy told me that I was getting a baby sister, the moon was the shape of a banana. But Daddy said, the moon is always round. And when Mommy's belly started getting a little bit bigger, the moon was the shape of a slice of an apple. But Daddy said, the moon is always round. You turn the page, and the next scene, the mom's sitting back in the bathroom with her uh, face in her hands. And he says, when, when Daddy said I was no longer getting a little sister, the moon was the shape of a shriveled orange. But Daddy said, the moon is always round. And when we went to the hospital... And after all the waiting, we came home without little sister. I said, why, Daddy? And Daddy said, I don't know, but the moon is always round. And when we went to the church to say goodbye to little sister, Daddy asked me, what shape is the moon? And I said, the moon is always round. And Daddy said, and what does that mean? And I said, that God is always good. And we can know that God is always good despite our circumstances because he gave us his son. So we know that no matter what the moon looks like, no matter our circumstances, we can trust this God because we look back at his sovereign saving works. We can praise him for this. We can have hope for the present and trust for the future as we look back to what God has done in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. For those in here, Lord, who are, who are in a tough spot, depressed, dire circumstance, Lord, I pray that you've, you've drawn them near to yourself this morning with these truths, that you are good and gracious. You've sent your Son, Lord. You will, you will give us everything we need to make it through this life, Lord. We will get our hands off the world and more onto you. We look back on all the ways that you've provided for us, not just in Christ, but Lord, you've provided food and clothing and shelter for us. You provide for the birds, Lord, you'll provide for us. Trust you, Lord, you are a good father. You shepherd us, we shall not want. We love you and we praise you and we glorify you this morning for who you are, and for what you've done. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand? Standing on this mountain top Looking just how far we've come Knowing that forever